you're listening to IIPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. Today, IIPod is at the Duke Lemur Center's main campus in Durham, North Carolina. We're here to talk to one of the Lemur Center's full-time scientists who studies lemurs here at the Lemur Center and in Madagascar. My name is Lydia Green, and I'm technically what's called a postdoctoral associate here at the Duke Lemur Center, which really just means that I'm a researcher who's already completed by a PhD. Hey there, I'm popping in to let you know that since the recording of this interview, Lydia has actually accepted an exciting new opportunity to move to the next stage in her career as the Director of Academic Engagement in the Natural and Quantitative Sciences. But don't worry, she's still at Duke encouraging and mentoring students and also still spending time on her research. So you've been a part of the Lemur Center since you came to Duke for your undergraduate degree, but I happen to know that your road to a career in science has an unusual starting point. I grew up in New York City, so concrete jungle, not actual organic jungle, and I wasn't really interested in ecology or wildlife at all. I was trying to become a professional ballet dancer. Lydia left ballet and headed to college, having no idea what I wanted to study. One of the first things she did when she arrived at Duke was to go to the work-study job fair. And there was a life-size stuffed animal, Shafak, on the table. And I just walked over and I was like, hi, what is this thing? I don't think I'd ever heard of a lemur. And they said, we're looking for work-study tour guides. And I was like, okay. Being at the Lemur Center as a freshman tour guide, Lydia became interested in all the other things going on here, particularly the scientific research. So I started joining research labs, getting involved as an assistant on different projects, trying to get my hands in different areas of research to figure out what I was interested in. And then I ended up doing my undergraduate project out here on scent marking in our Shafak, going back to that stuffed animal that was on that table. After finishing your bachelor's degree in evolutionary anthropology, uh, you spent some time researching, checks notes, meerkats. Which are delightful little critters. But you came right back to lemurs and got into Duke. So I did a PhD in the ecology program here and graduated in 2019, studying again the Shafox. All right, before we move on to your current research, let's go back a minute. So this all started when you saw that stuffed Shafak? What sparked interest my undergraduate freshman year was that life-size stuffed animal Shafak on that table, and that turned into a now 16-year career journey for me. And now they're the focus of my postdoctoral research as well. You took like not even a hard left, like a complete 180 different plane of existence, basically from your original plan. I did. Yeah, I was I was that kid who at 11 had no idea that there were ants in somebody's backyard, but I knew I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, And so I meet a lot of students now who, especially through my social media work um, in terms of the science communication side of things, I meet a lot of students who are like, oh, I don't think I can go into science because I didn't know from the time that I was six that I wanted to be a biologist. And I was like, wow, hold on. (laughs) Because, you know, up until I think really my third or fourth year of graduate school, I wasn't even convinced that this was going to be a lifelong um, pursuit for me. So looking back, did your experiences in ballet, uh, something that's a very physical and artistic expression, um, how did that help you become a scientist? Ballet training um, really instills in you a lot of independence and a lot of work ethic and a lot of understanding of how um, to, to be driven to work for yourself. So I... I'm very self-motivated. I'm very disciplined. I am happy to work independently. I don't need pressure from a supervisor or a boss to get things done. That's just innate and self-driven. And I have a lot of respect for corrections and being able to apply criticism to improve and recognizing that there is always room for growth and improvement. So I think those are the really good things that the ballet world can instill in you. (laughs) 
I mean, one of the things that makes the lemur center special are the NHEs. Those are the natural habitat enclosures. Were the NHEs a draw for you developing your research questions? Is that part of the reason why you're here? It's because of them that I can do the work that I do. My PhD degree is in ecology, and I think of myself as an ecologist, which means that I study animals in the context of their environment. I'm fascinated by these lemurs, but I'm fascinated by these lemurs in the context of where they live. And so in Madagascar, we can ask all sorts of interesting questions about how Shafak live in, in the particular place where they're endemic, so the Northwest. But here at the Lemur Center, we can also ask about how our Shafak, how they're living their lives and what they're doing in the context of a North Carolinian forest, which is a very, very different ecosystem. And it's by putting these animals in sort of these experimental forest enclosures and letting them forage and letting them travel and letting them play and letting them raise their families out in these woods that we can ask about flexibility. We can ask about how do they find food? How do they know what foods are okay to eat? How do they use space? How do they move um, in the trees? There's all sorts of questions that we can ask because we put these animals in a North Carolina ecosystem that really becomes an experimental setup that I think is fascinating for ecology. And so that's what a lot of my postdoctoral work has been doing is asking how are these animals adapting to life in, in North Carolina and what can we learn from them about how these animals can adapt to change. The natural habitat enclosures are always a source of fascination and questions for visitors. They always want to know if we import trees from Madagascar or clear anything like poison ivy out. And the answer is no. (laughs) The lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center are living in patches of North Carolina forests that exactly resemble the surrounding Duke forest. I think a lot of people, myself included, are very surprised. We put a species that's native to just a small area in northwest Madagascar, the dry deciduous forest of northwest Madagascar, and we put them in the Duke Forest in North Carolina, and they know what to eat. They eat like a really diverse array of plants and they know what foods are good for them and they know what to avoid. And it's actually kind of astonishing to think like if I travel to an international destination and someone plunked me down without a guidebook, would I know what my gastrointestinal system could tolerate? Probably not. But these animals somehow have the intuition or they've learned or something in them is telling them what is okay for them to do in these forest enclosures and what's safe. And you have spent a lot of time observing how they survive in the forest of the lemur center, right? I spent the spring and summers of 2020 and 2021 just with a notebook and some binoculars out in our forest enclosures, just trying to document what it is that our animals are doing in the woods all day long. And the genesis of that project was twofold, which is that I was just coming on staff as a postdoc. um, And so I was really interested in exploring the potential for research here as an ecologist you know, how much are our animals taking advantage of these forest enclosures and how much work could we do to sort of understand that? Or were they really not using them at all? And maybe that wasn't maybe an interesting route to go down. So that was part of it was I was just curious as an ecologist, what Shafox are doing in North Carolina when we give them access to a forest. And then the other part of it is that that was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was really eager to find a way to do science that was going to be safe for myself and safe for the animals. And nothing seems safer than the animals being 20 feet up in a tree and me being below them masked outside, you know, no direct contact, no, really no shared air. And so it was both as a, as a way to do science that was going to be safe, but also as a way to do science that was going to sort of lead somewhere. And so, yeah, I spent two years doing what are called focal follows. So I would come out at sunrise, I would track the animals to where they were sleeping out in the woods, which required actually using telemetry. So a radio um, receiver to pick up the frequency from the collars to find out where they were, just like you would do in, in Madagascar. So I'd get out here at sunrise, which was often five in the morning. 
And basically I would follow the animals all day long until sunset, which oftentimes was 7.30. And so I would do sort of a block of observations in the morning and then a block of observations in the afternoon. And I was basically recording what the animals were eating. So every foraging bout, how long were they spend on each bout of foraging and what plant were they eating? The plant part, was it a leaf? Was it a flower? Was it a fruit? What was the name of the plant? Was it oak? Was it maple? Was it poplar? And then I had a handheld GPS on me. And every time the dominant female in the family moved 10 meters in any horizontal direction, I would mark a point so I could see where they were ranging. So what's it like to be out there with the lemurs all day, every day? If you go out into our one of our natural habitat enclosures around 2 or 3 p.m., it's probably going to be pretty awfully hot. Uh, bring a lot of water with you. Also make sure you are covered in bug spray with long pants because mosquitoes are problematic here. But if you go out around two or three o'clock, you're going to find our Shafak napping. They'll have had a really, really big lunch, full bellies. They're spending a lot of time digesting. Uh, if you have good tracking gear, they're very easy to find because they're not moving anywhere. So they're a, a target that you can just track and find. And then basically you just sit and wait for a couple of hours for them to finish napping. The kids might be playing. There might be a little bit of grooming or snuggling or singing. Um, the animals actually do sing to each other sometimes. It's really wonderful. But it's basically just peaceful nap time, chill, family bonding. Just take a seat on the floor and just wait for them to go somewhere else. And then usually around, I would say, four or five o'clock, um, you see it's almost like a flip switches in their brain and they're like, oh, time to forage. And so whoever is in charge of the group, be that the dominant female or maybe one of the kids decides to go off, the whole group moves off as a unit and they leave wherever they are. And oftentimes you can tell that they like know where they're going. They're like, ah, we're going to the oak grove in the bottom of NHE5 or we're going to the tulip poplar plants in the top of NHE6. And so you'll see them sort of like decide as a unit, oh, let's go find the muscadine grapes that are in the back of, of NHE6 or something like that. And so they sort of beeline and move very, very quickly to where they're going. And then you with your tracking gear and your radio and your binoculars, you sort of like trundle along behind them, falling over. And your useless feet that can't grasp any branches. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a mess. Um, usually I fall down a few times, drop a few things. So you follow them as, as best you can, which is usually pretty embarrassing. And I'm glad there's nobody watching me at that time of day. And then they get to where they're going. It might be in August, it might be at the top of a white oak tree and they're eating acorns. It might be at the top of a tulip poplar tree in spring where they're eating flowers. Um, it might be in a giant sort of muscadine grape vine heaven for them where they're going to spend the next two hours eating fruit and usually they will basically hang out for a couple of hours just eating and usually they're up high in the tree they don't care that you're there and you spend a lot of time staring up through your binoculars with your neck hurting a lot um, you can put your bag down next to you and just sort of stand there under them and you're just writing lines of foraging behavior so at five hour 5 p.m minute 15 and 36 seconds Gisela began feeding on tulip poplar flowers and three minutes later she stopped and then Rupert began feeding on a redbud tree and then he stopped. And that's basically just you recording over and over and over and over again what they're doing. And when they move, you take out your GPS unit and you record where they are. And that's that's the day. The next morning, they're where you left them. They're sleeping out in the woods. So it's, it's yeah, it's all, you go from nap time to forage time to play time. You get to see sort of the whole, like, whole experience. And you didn't just hang out in the NHEs during standard business hours, right? You lingered into that twilight. Most of the human primates have headed home. So I was really curious about what they were doing in sort of those evening hours and how they were spending their time. So I got permission to hang out by myself after hours, just 
right before sunset and just watch what they were doing, which turns out to be the magic hour here at the lemur center. After everyone's gone for the afternoon, the animals know they're not getting any more snacks um, and they take off and they go on these sort of really epic like foraging adventures to the back of the enclosures and just hanging out all the way up at the top of the oak trees, the top of the poplar trees, just foraging for what they can find out there. And, and you know, they don't even care that I'm down below. They don't even notice me. And it's a really lovely, lovely time of day. The, the animals seem to be in sort of a different state than they are when, you know, the bowl of food comes out for them. You see, you know, moms up in the trees with the kids right next to them. The kids are watching what mom is eating. They're trying the same things mom is trying. I love to see the animals all the way up at the top of the trees where I can only see them through my binoculars or there are days when I only even know they're there because they're dropping acorn shells on my head and otherwise I can't see them. And, and those are the moments for me that I find the most wonderful is actually when I can barely, barely see the animals at all. It's just, I mean, it's really just like a magical, I, I call that the, like the magic hour here at the lemur center. There's nobody around to see it except me. It just feels like very personal and it's it'll probably be memories that I carry with me like for the rest of my life and I'm very grateful to have been able to have that experience. All right so you've spent all these hours in the NHEs what'd you find out and and how does that compare with what you and others have seen in Madagascar? What we found out basically is that the Shafox behavior here is on the low range of what's known from wild Shafox in Madagascar, but it's not off the charts low. So for example, a Shafox in Madagascar will spend 20 to 60% of their time foraging. Our Shafox are spending 25% of their time foraging. So it's not like they're off the scale of what their wild kin are doing, despite the fact that we're feeding them, despite the fact that there's people around during staff hours, they're still behaving pretty much in line with what their wild kin are doing in Madagascar. The diet that they're selecting tracks phenology here. It's tracking flowering and fruiting and leafing out the same way that their wild kin would be in Madagascar. So this research project, it grew out of your previous work that was actually in Madagascar, right? In Madagascar, I first started working on the gut microbiome, which is what my dissertation was focused on, in part because fecal samples are one of the easiest things to collect from unhabituated, uncollared, unstudied wild populations where the animals see you and they basically run away from you, sort of poop and flee. And so I basically started just collecting fecal samples to do a really big comparative microbiome project because that's what I could realistically get. And now I'm in the position where I'm working with some of our Malagasy colleagues who've got more long-term behavioral data in on Shafak in a lot of different habitats within Madagascar. And so approaching it not from the perspective of like just me going and collecting stuff, but really trying to build more of a team atmosphere to understanding. And that comparison has brought up more questions. What foods are they selecting and why? Is it because it's got high protein or high sugar or high fiber? Are they selecting things by the sense of smell or by the sense of taste? How are they making those decisions? Why does a cockerel shafak here know that poison ivy is safe to eat? And our other lemur species know that it is not safe for them to eat. And so all of this is really about figuring out what shafak are adapted to eat. And so in, in scientific technical language, we call an animal that eats leaves a folivore. And shafak, I've often heard described as folivores, but I also know that shafak eat fruit, so that makes them frugivores. So where do we land? I would say shafaks are anatomical folivores. It's both correct to say that they're folivores and they're frugivores. They have the morphological capacity to eat and digest a lot of leaves. They have you know great teeth for shearing and grinding. They have a very very long gastrointestinal system. They are perfectly capable of handling like a lot of leaf matter. And our animals do love to eat leaves, but that doesn't mean that the only thing they eat are leaves. So shafak can be really opportunistic, and so that's where the frugivore part comes in. The fruit and the 
leaves because of course Madagascar is very very seasonal and especially where cockerelli naturally live in the northwest you have a strong rainy season and a strong dry season which means for part of the year you might have a lot of fruit and a lot of flowers and really accessible nutrition a lot of sugar and so the animals are going to take advantage of that it's probably going to be the season when they can gain some weight pack on a few extra pounds for the dry season but then comes the dry season when those fruits and flowers are gone and so shafak are spectacular in their ability to fall back on those leaves when there's nothing else available so in the seasons of plenty the diet could be 50 percent or more of fruits but in the lean season it's going to be a diet that's maybe 80 to 90 percent leaves and so it's that seasonality that really shapes a lot of the lives of lemurs and so their ability to take advantage of what's there but survive in the times when there's not much there besides leaves when we talk fruit in madagascar though we're not talking about the kinds of fruits we pick up at the farmer's market or at a grocery store right the fruits that grow out in the woods in nature are much less sugary they are much more fibrous they take much more work to digest and also in nature animals often can't find ripe fruits so they're eating unripe fruits and those ripe fruits can be very very high in fiber and very low in sugar and actually quite disgusting and so the fruits that these guys are eating in madagascar you know most of the time they're unripe they're seedy they're pulpy they're fibrous probably not that tasty unless you're a shafak um, and then what we see here at the dlc is that our shafak the fruits that they're selecting out in our natural habitat enclosures are also not bananas they're things like muscadine grapes they're fruits from the tulip poplar tree and so there is that difference between wild fruits and the fruits that we have bred and there was a really nice uh, paper that came out a couple years ago led by christoph schwitzer showing that basically nutritionally orchard vegetables that we eat, so things like broccoli, cabbage, the things that we buy in the vegetable section of the grocery store, are more nutritionally akin to wild fruits than our orchard fruits. So as you're looking into the diversity of the Shafak diet, you can also look at the diversity of the Shafak themselves, right? Like here at the Lemur Center, we have Propithecus cockerelli, or cockerel shafak, but there are eight other species of shafak in Madagascar. As an ecologist, I tend to think about populations. So our cockerelli here are emblematic of their species, but they're a very different population from the wild shafak that live in Ankarafonsika National Park or Anjajavi or the Mariarana region, right? They live in different habitats, they're facing different pressures, and they're behaviorally adjusting to, to whatever is going on in, in their lives. But we have to pull from the literature of what's known and what's been studied and not every population's been studied and oftentimes we're using one population in one protected area as sort of the the iconic population that reflects their entire species when maybe that's not necessarily the case so this past summer i went to a wonderful site called a tremu in the high plateau in madagascar i say summer it was winter there it was freezing cold um because southern hemisphere but our summer months i went to the site called a tremu and it was just this beautiful mountainous cold high plateau site and there we had this population of Shafak, which we think of as being a desert adapted species and what were they doing in the mountains and they were there and so does the literature on Shafak from the desert really reflect what this population in this mountainous high plateau forest what they're doing i don't know and so i think we have to diversify how we're studying these animals and i think our cockerelli here fit into that story of what does this species do in a place that's very different from the rest of the populations 
And as you learn more about these populations in Madagascar, I imagine that you just have a lot more questions. There are still places in Madagascar where we don't know what species of lemur lives there. We don't know what that population is doing. We don't, we don't know. Okay, so we know you're approaching the Shafak through an objective scientific lens, but let's be honest, you still have to have a favorite from so many years watching them at the Lemur Center, right? The number one individual Shafak that will, I think, forever rank as my favorite individual of all time is a female Shafak named Gertrude. She's just a spunky, mischievous, just really personable animal. And I really enjoyed watching her out in our forest enclosure. She just loves to play. She loves to cause trouble in the best ways possible. She's just really curious and just full of life. She has no connection to me, but I have a strong connection to her. Um, And as a wild animal, she shouldn't have a connection to me, but I feel very attached to her personally. So what are some of your favorite lemur species? So, I mean, the cockerel shafak has got to be, like I said, that is the species that I did my undergraduate research on, my graduate research on, and now my postdoctoral research on. So it's, I've, I've been working with that particular species for a long time. I will say that in my early years, I did not give enough, um, uh, I did not put enough emphasis on what I have come to love about the dwarf lemurs. And having married a dwarf lemur biologist, those have really taken up a space in my heart that they did not have. Thank you so much, Lydia, for sharing so much of your story and your work with us here on iIPod. Thank you guys for having me. To learn more about Lydia and her work, follow her on Instagram at lemur scientist. That's all one word, lemur scientist. As always, we're going to link more information in the show notes, including a recent article by Lydia and her collaborators that we think is particularly beautifully designed and super accessible to folks outside of academia. Pro tip, if you ever hit a paywall or have trouble finding an academic article, you can just reach right out to the authors because most of them, like Lydia, are happy to send that to you over email. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt. And Megan. And all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center.